0: This is The Education Conversation, a podcast about how individuals and organizations create change in education. I'm Ryan Knight. Carrie Conaway is the Chief Strategy and Research Officer at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, where she helps the Commonwealth of Massachusetts set priorities in education by commissioning and evaluating research, and leading strategic planning for her department. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's about the details of translating research into policy. We talk about how immigration and healthcare affect education, and Carrie shares her secret to success, no meeting Fridays. If you enjoy this conversation, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and send this podcast to your friends. As always, send along your guest suggestions to ryan at edconvo.com. I really want to hear from you. Okay, let's go. Carrie, thank you for joining.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So I uh, was considering for a time doing a PhD in education and I had decided not to and part of it was... Because I came to think of research as sort of like the weather system where I know that like (laughs) conceptually water in the ocean turns into rain, you know, on my house. But the process of like water actually being evaporated and then going into clouds and then coming and raining somewhere else, it just seems like kind of suspicious to me. So the process of like pouring my little thimble full of research into the, you know, research ocean. And then that would be absorbed through policymakers somewhere and somewhere else it would rain, uh, rain, rain action based on research. Uh, It it seemed like a a very indirect path to to impact. Um, And what I like about your work and why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I see you as having said uh, enough of this research weather system stuff. I'm going to build a water pipeline to irrigate Massachusetts with research. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's very funny. Um, yeah, either that or I'm some sort of weather overlord. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Rain here.
1: <clears throat> me. No, I think you're, you're right about that, Ryan, that the sort of traditional way that people think about research is more what you're saying. Like, we're going to produce some research study and we're going to hope that someone somewhere reads it and and it has an influence in some way. And I do actually think that there's a lot of research that does influence policymakers thinking in that way, that sort of conceptual, how do I think about that problem, or how do I solve this issue that's in front of me, or what have, what have other people have learned, but it's not a very um, direct connection. And when I came here to the state at this point 10 years ago, I really wanted to change the way we thought about research so it was much more embedded in really actually learning about our work and improving our work. So it's less about proving that whether something, quote, worked or not, and more about what do we need to learn in order to do our work better and differently in the future?
0: And so what is it to you that makes research more or less easy to consume as a policymaker?
1: Well, the easiest to consume is the stuff I asked for, right? So <laughs> if I've commissioned a work of some kind, I'm really interested in the answer. That's why I asked somebody to work on it. Um, and especially if we're putting money into it. So I, I start to think When I think about our research work at Massachusetts, we drive it from our strategic plan. We start with, we have five goals for the agency, each one of which we need to learn about in order to do our work better. And so we go through a process, typically about once a year, of taking a look at our work in each area and saying, all right, what is it we need to learn? What is it um, that we're curious about? What is it that's going to make a big difference if we understand this better? And then my job is really figuring out Once the program staff have defined what they need to learn, figuring out the best way to get that done, which could be through a university partnership. It could be through issuing a contract. It could be something we do internally or some combination of those things.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you've created a pretty or helped to create at least a pretty vibrant research ecosystem in Massachusetts, you know, perhaps rivaled only by North Carolina. What is North Carolina doing and Massachusetts doing um, in order to create this research ecosystem?
1: Well, I, I can't tell you exactly what North Carolina is doing because I obviously don't work there, but I can tell you what we do. Um, you know, we've started with, when I first came here, um, a couple key projects that have really paid off and probably the first one that pops in my mind is the um, study of the impact of charter schools in Boston relative to the traditional schools. It's a funny story. Literally, on my first day of work, the uh, Deputy Commissioner at the time, Jeff Nellhouse, came to me with this list of things he wanted me to work on, which were mostly things like how do other states calculate their graduation rates, or um, can you help figure out a project for the Regional Education Lab, or things like that. But one was figure out um, how to do a study of the impact of charter schools. And I should preface this by saying that I was brand new to education policy. I had a research background, but not education. Mm -hmm. And so little did I know that I was threading into perhaps (laughs) the thorniest and most political of all topics. Um, But I said, okay, sure, we can figure that out. And so the the process we had to go through to define the questions we wanted to answer, figure out how to get data out of the agency, by the way, which we had never done before, when it wasn't on a contract, so all the sort of data sharing and confidentiality requirement type issues, um, as well as just the, the policy and political issues around that, really helped us to, to build a lot of the infrastructure that has later benefited us in terms of all the work that we do. Because that was a university-based partnership, it was actually at first a contract, but later not, so working out all those issues, the data sharing agreement that we issued then is probably the same as the one we use today, you know. So that was a big investment in infrastructure that helped us get the system going. And then, you know, those researchers have graduate students working on the projects who then have ideas for other things they want to work on Mm -hmm. that we're interested in too. Or they say, hey, we got data from Massachusetts to study charter schools. And somebody else says, oh, I wonder if they would also be interested in sharing data to look at school turnaround or some other topic. And so that um, investment has really Paid off, and then now, as I was describing earlier, we really we have a much more planful and purposeful way of going about it. At the time, it was a little more top policy issues, um, kind of the you know two or three key things that are really important at any given moment. Now we have a much more um, structured process, and I think a much broader set of questions that we're interested in. But um, the seeds of where we are today was really planted back then.
0: So perhaps a little cross-state competitiveness here, Uh, it may be that there are probably more studies coming out of North Carolina than Massachusetts, Uh, why is that, why is North Carolina uh, sort of, why isn't Massachusetts doing more I guess?
1: So second best isn't good enough. Exactly. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know they have a different approach to their data sharing because they work through. I believe it's Duke University holds the data, um, or at least it's a partnership that Duke is affiliated with, and they, the state agency, isn't as involved in approving the questions. Mm. It's more. I think I don't want to speak it totally for them, but I believe it's a little bit more. Hey, anybody who's got an interesting question can use the data. Our sense here is just we. Um, We want to make sure that we're investing the state's time and effort in the stuff that matters the most to us. And so we have a little bit more of a gated approach, I would say. Um, That being said, I would contend that we probably do give out the second most amount of, you know, um, we have probably the second largest number of research projects coming out other than North Carolina. So we do invest a lot in our research work.
0: And these are largely what I would characterize as sort of impact evaluations, where people are taking a very high degree of rigor to answering the question at hand and they're trying to identify causal mechanisms if you think about the different um, types of research that can influence policymakers, um, what what is the sort of ratio of value between stuff that's more qualitative more case study oriented stuff that's sort of more monitoring uh types of research that's looking at You know just what is happening here how many students are graduating from you know two-year colleges or or whatever the question may be stuff that's like sort of evaluation oriented like what is the impact of this policy where the causal identification strategy may not be quite as strong but it's trying to answer like a particular policy question and then this real impact evaluation stuff where you're really trying to look at you know charter lotteries or some other natural experiment
1: for Massachusetts I think our our most value that we get out of research is more actually not so much the impact evaluations, Mm. although those are important and we like to sponsor them where we can. Uh, But I think implementation research is extremely helpful, especially when coupled with an impact evaluation. Some of the best projects we've worked on are the ones where we get a sense of both implementation and impact. Because in the end, my job is not to run the perfect research study with a perfectly identified causal analysis. It's to improve the education of a million kids in the commonwealth. And I don't want to let the, uh, the baby go down the drain with the bathwater here. You know, if we can learn something that's going to help us improve, even if it may not be, you know, a randomized control trial or something equivalent, that's still better than just not looking at it at all. And so our struggle is to figure out how far can we push and try to get to doing proper rigorous causal impact analysis, where that's appropriate and makes sense for the program, but also where do we compromise but still do something rigorous, maybe just not going to meet what works clearinghouse um, requirements or something like that.
0: So that assumes that the sort of directionality of the lesser rigorous research is positively correlated with the directionality of more rigorous research, right? Because it could be that the actual sign would flip from a less rigorous evaluation to a more rigorous evaluation.
1: It could, although in the couple cases where we've had an opportunity to test that, that has not been the case. Uh, The charter school study is is a good example of that, Mm -hmm. where in the initial study, we actually had them look at for the schools where there was a lottery, they did the lottery analysis. But we were worried that was only a small number. I think it was like six or something schools had enough additional applicants to be able to run the lottery analysis. So we asked them to also run a more traditional um, regression-based control design on all the schools. And we got not only the same directionality, but fairly close to the same coefficient, so fairly similar measured impact across the two. Um, and that's generally been my experience. You're right that it could happen, that you would get the wrong answer if you if you didn't have a proper um, random assignment or something equivalent. But generally, my experience is that they're at least going in the same direction, and they're going to lead you to approximately the same conclusion.
0: So you sort of get the study, um, and it you know, suggests the potential direction. Like what happens then?
1: I think that's actually in a way framing it, the, the process, not the way that we work. I think we don't normally sort of like sit around and wait for the study, you know? We kind of like, ideally we're engaging with the researchers the whole way along and we're learning from the work. And let me actually tell you a story that I think really well exemplifies this because it's the same set of researchers doing two types of deliverables and how we've shifted over time. One of the very first projects I worked on here, other than the charter school project, was an evaluation of the expanded learning time program in Massachusetts, which expands the school day by about 300 hours over the course of the year for, at any given time, roughly 20 schools. And they're supposed to be doing three things, expanding time for student learning, expanding time for student academics, and expanding time for teachers to collaborate together. And this is a big initiative. We're spending you know, $12 million, $15 million a year, or something like that, and we have an evaluation attached to it. That's So the good thing that we did was we had both an implementation and an outcomes analysis. So it wasn't just, you know, did the kids' MCAS scores improve, but also what do teachers think about it? What do students think? Are they getting tired by the end of the day? Um, are they experiencing costs they weren't anticipating? Those kinds of questions as well. The problem was we commissioned Apt Associates to do the traditional annual research report, which is sort of like the standard thing that you commission. You say, please write us a report every year on this program. And so there they are collecting all this great information. They've got a student survey. They're doing interviews. They've got data, you know, all this interesting stuff. But we're waiting until the full report to really get the findings from anything. So we have to wait not only for the school year to end, but the MCAS data to come back from the testing vendor then to be cleaned up and analyzed and it's typically like february of the next year before we get this report telling us what happened the prior year in the um in the program which was just not useful it was i mean it was sort of useful it was better than not doing it but the value added relative to the timeliness was just not there it was very frustrating because you'd be like well it we, we, looks like the program's not having much of an impact in most schools, but we don't really know which schools those are, and it was last year, and we changed this thing about the program right. this year, so that might make it, you know. And it just every year was just didn't feel as meaningful as it should have. Then fast forward, we um, ended up also hiring APT via a subcontract with SRI International to be our evaluator for our statewide implementation of educator evaluation, which was part of our Race to the Top initiatives and it's not only the same contractor literally the same human beings are on this project <laughs> but we totally changed the deliverables we went to something that was more of a initially kind of quarterly report so tell us everything that you've collected and learned so far this quarter ultimately we we shifted then to like get your survey done and get us the results as soon as the survey's done and who cares if that's quarterly we'll kind of do it based on the data collection right. cycle and eventually even Don't so much worry about sending us reports in a format that makes sense for us. Give us reports in the format that we can give directly to districts. So we're feeding stuff back to districts, and we're kind of learning along the way, but we're trying to push towards the district's learning and not just us. And it's just a great example, I think, of how how you conceptualize what you want your research for um, and how you plan for the kinds of things you ask for, whether from a university partner or for a vendor, um, can really make a big difference in terms of how research actually gets used
0: that's a great story and what I like about it is uh the emphasis on who is doing the change there shifting um to being Mm -hmm. directly to the districts so I'm curious as you think about your work do you have sort of a uh like a model or, or a framework for how or when you try to influence what teachers do what principals do what districts do or what um, sort of regulator or policymakers do. Well,
1: I think my first priority generally is the state, just because right. you know it's the scale you need to be at to influence district practice is challenging for at the state level. And my first job is to make sure our own work is being evaluated and being examined. So that being said, I think we are we do have some examples in my office of places where we have tried to touch more directly into districts. For example, we produce a tool called the District Analysis and Review Tool, which is um, our our attempt at providing... Yes, the DART. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yes. Well, it was inspired by Carla Baer, who was a deputy uh, commissioner here a while back, who said, you know, when I was a superintendent in districts, I could look on your state profile's webpage, but it was really hard to know what other districts or schools I should compare myself to, what my trend looks like over time, how that compares to my comparison or compares to the state. And we thought, you know, we publish all this data, but we weren't doing a lot to help people use it. And so the DART's a good example of where we're trying to get a little closer down to district level analysis to help inform decisions. And then more recently, we're working right now to develop a series of reports that we're calling RADAR for Resource Allocation and District Action Reports. And here we're trying to get at the issue of how districts use their resources. Our concern is that our state population of K to 12 students is on a not a super fast decline, but it's declining slowly mm-hmm. over time. And meanwhile, the number of retirees and older people are increasing in the state. So the likelihood of getting a whole lot more of resources into education in the next you know several decades is not great. And we need to help districts think about how to better use the resources they already have um, instead of just sort of assuming they're going to get an X percent increase in their budget every year. So we're trying to use the state data that districts already report to us and feed back to them. How do you compare in terms of your average class size in your English classes compared to other districts? Or how do you deploy your special education personnel compared to others? And how many of your kids are you serving in-district versus out-of-district? Or how does your student-to-teacher ratio compare to other districts that serve kids like yours? So not because we necessarily have an answer to the way districts should structure themselves, but because... Comparative data sometimes can just open up a, oh, I never thought about that I could, you know, how are they managing to do the same task with, you know, three fewer teachers than I am? And it generates conversations and inquiry that we think are really helpful. So those are, I think, the places where we most are trying to push on influencing district practice um, as opposed to the state. Another big piece that I think will be coming more in the next few years will be around the evidence-based language in ESSA, the Every Student Mm -hmm. Succeeds Act which in some cases encourages and in some cases requires districts to use evidence-based practice. I think my office can be really helpful to districts because we have a lot of experience with doing that to think about what that means, how to generate evidence on their own work, how to use the evidence that exists from other um, systems similar to theirs, and hopefully also how to help them learn from one another so that they're not doing this independently, but they're working together and learning from other districts.
0: I want to go back to this point about uh, like long-term trends in education funding, um, mm-hmm. just to make sure that I understand it. So the uh, hypothesis that you laid out is that due to demographic change trends um, or what have you, that the number of students in Massachusetts will be roughly flat or declining, whereas the number of old people or retirees will be increasing. And so, therefore, the healthcare costs um, in Massachusetts will be increasing over time. And if there's sort of a fixed pie for uh, state funds, that that pie will shift more towards healthcare than education.
1: Well, and pensions and other hmm. costs of uh, older people. But yes, yeah, I think the number of um, older people I think is poised to almost double in the next, like, from now till twenty twenty five. And the state student population is poised to, predicted to decline by about, if I'm remembering correctly, about five
0: percent. Hmm. So, in per person terms, would you expect um, the amounts of funding to stay roughly constant, and that the uh, trends will just be in the number of people, or do you and ent- like anticipate as the um, trends in sort of interest or interest groups changes that that could imp- impact the per person amounts as well?
1: Uh, it's really hard to predict. I mean, I, that's really a, be a great question to ask one of our state legislators. You know? <laughs> right. That's that's their job. <laughs> so my, my main concern is just that, you know, compared to, say, several decades ago where you were seeing increases in student population, we are not seeing that now. And so just on a dollar for dollar basis, it's you, you just you're looking into the tea leaves. You're, my sense is that we should not assume that every district is going to get a 3% increase the way that they have yeah. in the past.
0: Yeah, I think this is a critical point because um, right now the national debate uh, issues of healthcare and immigration are so much louder than issues of education, though education has sort of a persistent noisiness to it <laughs> when you're living yes. in education. Uh, but it is an example of how those debates can influence education strongly uh, to the extent that we have less immigration, then we have less increase in the number of students, and to the extent that um, we continue to not... Uh, directly address uh, healthcare challenges in a reasonable and reasoned way, um, then that can influence healthcare spending, which can influence uh, the dollars that are available to education as well.
1: Yeah, and then of course, all of those interact with one another as well. So in Massachusetts, our largest, growing, fastest growing student demographic group is English language learners, the large majority of whom are immigrants. So even as we're seeing student and overall student enrollment declines we're seeing a pretty substantial uptick in English language learners which means we're now serving a more um, a more disadvantaged student population on the same amount of resources
0: hmm. so uh, as you are trying to influence policymaking at the state level um, through this this research program that you're running what um, How do you build a case for change using evidence? Is it something that people are really hungry and eager for or are you strategic about how you uh, work evidence into program design?
1: You know, I am so fortunate that I have an exceptionally nerdy group of colleagues and peers (laughs) here at the agency. So my commissioner is, um, has had a job similar to mine in the past in the School District of Philadelphia and mm-hmm. elsewhere. So he's very up to speed. And it is, it's not infrequent. He comes to me with, Hey, did you see this new research project about blah, bitty, blah, blah, <laughs> um, which is great. And then the, um, the three senior associate commissioners who cover the majority of the programmatic work of the agency, each in their own way, is very invested in research and evidence and learning from their work. Um, and so it really facilitates my job in a way that is, um, I, I gives me a real privilege relative to what I imagine some other states may may have a different set of constraints. Um, that being said we do try to be really thoughtful about what what are the questions we we want to know are there questions to which we do not want to know the answer <laughs> um, those, those kind of things because I think you know any study that can be interpreted correctly can also be misinterpreted right. and so we want to be thoughtful about making sure that whether it's our own work or, or Partner, a research partner, that we're framing issues in a way that makes sense with the um, the policy context, that where people understand the challenges and issues that are, are that relate to that, and and that's also where I think again that implementation research is so important because it gets at the why in a way that if all you have is the program increased student achievement by 0.03 standard deviations, it just feels lacking mm. and doesn't really drive change in a way that says, and we also learned that. The programs that were implementing this the best had a much stronger positive outcome and the three things that they were doing were these and we didn't see those in the schools that weren't implementing well and you know that kind of work is really really important for us
0: mm. so when you say implementation research you're more talking about trying to um, get into sort of productivity almost or like how what are the things that you need to do to do this well which is i think slightly different from when you hear academics talk about sort of breaking into the black box of impact evaluation, you hear them talk about mechanisms a lot. So, like, what are the mechanisms here? And in mechanism studies, what they're trying to do is kind of distill universal principles that could be applied in different settings. Um, So, like, what are the um, different almost human characteristics that exist in a real way that are the reasons why this thing worked, Uh, and I you can I think probably tell by the way that I describe this that I'm a little bit disillusioned with the mechanism research because it's so wrapped up in the way that implementation happened within a given study, and so yours is more of a descriptive: um, how was this implemented, than a hunt for you know what particular cognitive learning trait do people have that this accessed
1: yeah I am similarly dissatisfied a lot of times with impact studies but for, maybe for a slightly different reason or maybe it's the same reason um, which is that a lot of times it seems like whatever the researcher has de- deemed a potential quote mechanism happens to be a thing they just happen to have data on mm-hmm. so they leave out lots of other potential hypotheses or theory that they could test because you know they happen to have some information about the class size in that so in the in their study so they're going to look at the that class size as a mechanism or whatever you know but it doesn't really feel like it's thought through from a theoretical framework of what do we think is likely to matter. And I think those, these types of studies are more typically done by quantitative-oriented researchers who have not um, collected qualitative data that might really get at the issues that would help them figure out what's actually happening. <clears throat> Excuse me. So an example of how I like to think about what types of research are really most useful in this regard are the stream of work we've done over the last five years or so around our school turnaround um, policy and programs where we did a comparative interrupted time series analysis looking at schools that got school redesign grants, which are big federal school turnaround grants, relative to other similar schools in the same districts that did not receive those grants. And so we weren't able to randomly assign, but we were at least able to come up with a reasonably credible comparison group um, of schools to look at and we saw pretty large and statistically significant impacts over the course of three years. The schools are improving uh, student achievement on average. I, I don't. I want to say it's about 0.3 standard deviations, which is quite large hmm. um, for an intervention like that. And that's great, and we're really happy that we can demonstrate that on average, um, the schools have the the programs we've been putting in have had an impact. But what is Equally as important to us is there's a huge amount of range around that. Some schools knocked it out of the park and others didn't. And we really want to learn from those two types of schools. So in these 40 or so schools that have um, gotten these grants, we do annual monitoring site visits where we do classroom observations and interviews and a structured protocol that's consistent from one school to the next and so we did a companion project where we looked at those data to be able to see can we differentiate from this data that we've collected practices that the schools that are implementing well and getting strong results are doing that the other ones are struggling to implement or are not implementing at all and so we've come up with four uh four turnaround practices um they're things like i mean they're, they're probably not rocket science or things <laughs> like leadership and governance really matter differentiating instruction for all students. But we can show clear evidence for each one of those things that that's really something that is present in schools doing well and not present in schools that are not doing well. Um, And those four practices thread through our turnaround offices all of their work, the grant priorities that they design, the way they organize their technical assistance. They keep reinforcing those same four practices. And to me, this is like the greatest possible example of how research isn't just sort of separate from the work of the office, but is really embedded in it and driving how they're doing their work day to day.
0: Right. So the question there would be, um, what is the impact of telling someone or encouraging people to do those four practices as separate from the impact of the additional money for the grant, right? Right. And so there has been some research on sort of like, can you get better at management? <laughs> because a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. sort of boils down to good management. Um, but, but that is a question that I spend a oh, ton of my time thinking about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are the things that make a good school? And to what extent um, is that skill of running a good school uh, teachable?
1: Yeah, well, I think that would be a, probably a better question to ask my school turnaround office because we have not really yet done the work to sort of say of the ones that aren't doing so well, where do we see that people have you know, shifted course or changed trajectory and what did it take to get them shifting? Um, what we have done is at least reinforced that we know these things matter. And so when we're developing the turnaround plans for new schools being identified, we require them to org- organize around that. We look for evidence that they've got a real plan and not just sort of lip service. I think a key distinction, though, about these practices is that they are not programs, right? So this is not like, oh, if you just put in one, two, three math in your fifth grade or whatever, right. you know, that that's the thing. It's more about the culture and the leadership and the um, the way you organize school, which going back to your point, that's it's much harder. You you can't just sort of like hand it off and be like, good luck. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to really re- embed it and reinforce it and look for evidence that it's happening, shift course if it can, it's challenging. I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, those schools are so far behind. It's a a big challenge to to fix the issues there.
0: Hmm. And those, um, the research study that you mentioned, the impact of the SRG grants, SRG grants, I understand to be sort of a sub-grant of school uh, investment grants, which was the um, national grant program. And so your positive impact of SRG grants in Massachusetts is, um, depending on how you interpret it, somewhat in contrast to recent evaluations of the national um, school investment grant program.
1: Yeah, yes, it is. Um, and I think, though, that the, that study, I think, got a little bit unfairly characterized as simply um, SIG grants don't work, Yeah. whereas, my read of it is it's a noisy zero as we call it in research so like on average no impact but there are some schools and some states where we are seeing positive results um so in massachusetts being one of them for example i think one of the big distinguishing characteristics was whether the state made their grants competitive or whether they did them as allocation grants and just gave everyone the same amount of money and you didn't have to compete for it we had to, schools had to compete for ours so you you had to have a good enough plan that we thought it was fundable. We did not just give money to every school that was eligible. Um, so, th- things like that can make a big difference. And it's hard, I think, in a national study like that to get at the nuance of how each program played out on the ground and to explain that noisy zero in a way that um, people understand that it's not literally, it's like, you know, I would not conclude that we are throwing money down a hole by investing in school turnaround. I just think what it tells us is we need to learn more about how to do that work well.
0: Mm, yeah. So I and I think that there though another question is to what extent is Massachusetts just different? Um, so you know Massachusetts is always a positive outlier in education and in stories about education. And I'm interested in your take on you know if you didn't know what the highest performing state for child's education was in the country and you had to guess. A reasonable guess would be the state with the highest levels of parent education, and Massachusetts is the state with the highest levels of both parent education and child education, Um, and it also has one of the largest uh, achievement gaps um, between uh, students who have parents with high education and low education or high income and, and low income. Um, So to what extent do you think that Massachusetts' advantage in education is uh, durable and real? And to what extent do you think it's based on broader characteristics of the state?
1: Well, I do think that a lot of the, if you look at NAEP and studies like that, where, where you're able to fairly compare across states, I mean, it is certainly the case that we have an advantaged population here. I also think, though, first of all, that we outperform even what you would predict given the characteristics we have in the state and that we did not we were not always this way if you looked at massachusetts performance in the early 1990s before standards-based reform we were average you know and i don't think that the differential on parent education has increased at the same rate as our improvement on our outcomes has increased so it's, it's a little bit of both things I also think, I mean, our achievement gaps are the biggest problem in Massachusetts. We're in a different circumstance than, for example, um, Tennessee, which I think of. They similar. They have a similar research office to ours, so I think of them with us a lot. And there, they've just low performance overall, and their goal is striving to bring their state up to the middle, mm. which is an entirely different challenge. Um, you know, and I think the achievement gap is the issue of the lifetime here. It's trying to reduce the correlation between kids' zip code and their outcomes is the big challenge. So we continue to do that through work around school turnaround where we've got a disproportionate concentration of the kids that are farthest behind, but also through, for example, special education programming or programming that's targeted to low-income kids or um, programs that are targeted to to improving teachers' abilities to teach kids of different backgrounds um, because that's really where we have to focus if we're going to continue to improve.
0: Um so to the extent that Massachusetts does outperform uh what you would expect given its characteristics I personally think that DESE is part of that. <laughs> um oh, well thank you. Yeah, uh, and um so in that in a couple of ways one is through policy making um another is that DESE is often held up as one of the best charter authorizers in the country. Um and so I wonder, given that your work is really about self-improvement at DESE, um, if you have a perspective on what is that secret sauce within the agency, um, to what extent is it that you sort of you know, have really nerdy colleagues and it's really people-based and um, it's sort of really dependent on the people who are in the roles, and to what extent do you think that it's sort of program-based and based on things that are institutionalized as approaches?
1: I think one factor that is often overlooked in why Massachusetts is so successful actually has nothing to do with any of the things you just listed. It's our governance structure Mm. because our commissioner is appointed by our board and then the board is appointed by the governor. So the commissionership doesn't turn over just because the governor has come and gone. And it that allows for a continuity of effort and focus that is not possible when you have a chief that is elected or a chief that is directly appointed by a governor. Right. And I think that I'd, I'd love to someday figure out exactly how much that matters. I'm not sure you could do that study, but I think it is a very substantial part of why we have for the last uh, 20 plus years continued in more or less the same direction and really been able to achieve so much um, with the resources that we have. Yeah. So that's a huge one. Then um, beyond that, you know, I think the, the nerdiness of my colleagues definitely helps. <laughs> uh, that, that is not, I'm never going to say no to colleagues who really get super excited about research. Um, but I think another factor, though, is this is something that's not unique to Massachusetts, is that we work with educators, and educators love learning. So to the extent you can frame research work as really being about learning, I think people get very engaged in that, and they want to do their work better. I think there's just a level of... Um, lack of cynicism about that kind of thing that we experience because of the field that we work in that really helps accelerate our work and that is something that any state should have the benefit of
0: Mm, interesting so what is one idea or organization or individual that you think does great work and is underappreciated
1: i have i have two that come to mind um, that i think would fall into that category the first is the association for education finance and policy And this might be a little bit self-serving because I was just elected as the president-elect of that organization, Uh, but they are an association of about 800 researchers who are very interested in education policy, as well as increasingly practitioners and policymakers who are interested in engaging in research about their work. So, this organization has is not it's primarily economists, not entirely though. There's a, a wide range of disciplines represented, and they are really investing a lot of time and effort at their leadership level to get. Um, better connections between research and policy and between researchers and policymakers. So I just think very highly of their work, and I think that they're really going to be a great resource for anybody in a state or a district who's interested in getting more involved in research, as well as any researchers who really want to connect with policymakers. So that's one. And then the other one that comes to mind is Chiefs for Change, um, which is a network of state and district education chiefs. And in particular, I really like their policy papers because the, these policy papers offer recommendations on the key policy issues that we're facing as a state. So it could be things like issues related to implementing the Every Student Succeeds Act or related to how to use evidence in research making or any of a variety of topics. They're always very timely, they're grounded in evidence and they're very thoughtfully done and they, they just are at a higher level of quality than almost any other similar type papers I see from other organizations.
0: What is one habit, tool, or technique that you use in your life that you think more people should do? So it can be work-related, I like to structure my meetings this way, I use this statistical technique that I find really helpful, or it can be unrelated to work, I'm a big biker, I use this type of, I don't know, bike shoe, I don't bike. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I think my work-related habit that I I would encourage others to adopt is no meeting Fridays. I really try hard to keep my schedule clear on Fridays for two reasons. One is that it allows me a little bit of flexibility. If something truly does come up at the last minute that's urgent, I'm not booked so solid that nobody can find time with me. And more importantly, I just find that if I don't feel caught up by the end of the week, then I spend the whole weekend kind of worrying about whatever thing I didn't get finished at work. Mm. Whereas if I leave myself some time on Fridays to clean up whatever email I didn't get to, or do that sort of half day long writing project that I don't have time for. Otherwise, I just, I feel more balanced in every aspect of my life. So I I recommend no meeting Fridays.
0: Uh, Time for some deep work.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That's great. I have one meeting Thursdays, but.
1: (laughs) Well, that's better. That's better. Does it like cut in the middle of your day though? Uh,
0: No, it's in the afternoon when I sort of need to pull my hat out of whatever I'm working on. But I find if if I did it on Fridays, I would get really pulled into a project that I would want to keep working on all weekend.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think one of um, one of my colleagues has. I think her whole center tries to do no meeting Tuesdays, so that and then people like often work from home on that day or um, just try to not book each other so they all have a work day. But I think similarly, they don't pick Fridays because they don't want to get pulled into the stuff they can't finish.
0: Thank you to Carrie for joining this conversation. Terry is at CL Conaway on Twitter, and I'm at RG Knight. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends about the education conversation.